Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Welcome. Today we are privileged to have Yasin Tokat. He is a PhD researcher who's deeply immersed in the confluence of cybersecurity, AI, and digital policy. He has a lot of experience in the realms of international law and cyber diplomacy, which sounds pretty cool, cyber diplomacy has a multifaceted approach to digital policy and has been instrumental at the Center for AI and Digital Policy, looking into what the G20 and G7 AI policy developments are, um, combined with some hands-on industry experiences before that. We'll talk about that a little bit. So welcome, Yasin. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Alan. Thanks for the introduction and invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us, how did you get into digital AI policy and kind of give us a little bit of your background? Of course, that was a long journey. So I'm an expat person. I'm originally from Turkey. So I had quite a bit time in Europe. So I had the chance to study in Germany. I had uh, studies in Hungary. I did my PhD, almost finished that. I will defend my thesis, which is about cyber diplomacy. In the meanwhile, I got to study international law during the master's. And as you mentioned, I also have some experience in international corporations. I think it is good to have some different aspects. And that is my idea to have some different exposures. When we say about like cyber AI, it's, it depends on actually the business. So it is something that is profitable. And something really relevant, which also just transforms the international business itself. So I think things are very interconnected. And that approach also kind of appealing to me to have kind of sense of what is going on in the international business, what is really relative. This is during my studies, I got more interest in digital policymaking. So normally in during my master's, I was thinking about international relations, political science and law. But I saw more and more through this digitalization and things began to change, especially during the COVID time. So then I got the idea that I need to focus on the, this aspect of digitalization is affecting the countries, affecting the policy, affecting almost every part of everyday life. So that was the idea. That's great. Well, uh, good luck on the PhD defense side. The joke here is PhD stands for finished because you're so sick of it by the time you're done. But <laughs> so you kind of hit on sort of the first question there, which is kind of give us an overview of your take on the AI and then regulatory landscape across G20 and G7. Of course, that is a difficult uh, subject, I think, because when we say AI, AI is just uh, mathematical. By itself, it's very subtract mathematical algorithms. It in itself, it is nothing. So it depends on data and technology. And data is produced by people. So we people, we have our faults, our prejudice, and we produce something and we fit the 
AI algorithm and then we expect something perfect out of it. So that is my idea that it is very difficult because it is very, the range is very wide. So there are a lot of issues. There's issues about information, disinformation, manipulation, using AI system for as weapon, surveillance. There are so many, so many issues that are, that are, can be destructive, but the way we should treat technology, it is like a magnifying glass. So if we focus on the positivity and the changes that it can bring, I think this can be the key to policy making. Otherwise, if we really think about the risk, they are endless and the globe is very wide. There are a lot of countries, a lot of agendas of the nation states, a lot of people. So many things can go wrong. So you can be suspicious of that country and they can be suspicious of you. And at, at the end of the day, it can be used as a weapon. The technology can be used as a weapon for the data stealing. From that aspect, I believe it is challenging. And why it is important maybe to focus the policy with uh, like-minded states like G7, something in common, it will bring more common ground because it is more difficult to have a chair sitting with China and discussing then for Germany and United Kingdom to come together and uh, try to figure out some of the issues. For that aspect, I believe it is in the EU level or some North Atlantic organization level that can be more effective, but the challenges are very difficult and they are evolving. So within, you know, saying within this G7 world of say, you know, the EU, United States, how do you see the regulatory stances differing at this point? I mean, just anecdotally kind of see like the U S maybe has, you know, just with GDPR and other regulatory history between the Europe and the United States, you kind of see a differing approach. The U.S. much more hands-off, EU much more involved. So are you seeing that duplicated here with the EU, with AI? Absolutely. The U.S. is the dominating force in the market. I mean, there are some states in G7 try to catch up, maybe like Germany, but the approach is definitely different. But United States in policy, it is more like less safe. So people are doing, producing stuff. And after some side effects are noticed, some harm is done. Maybe the policy is just triggered afterwards. In Europe, it is more like a cautious approach, which can be kind of stopping the development of some of the aspects, maybe. I think that's a challenge, maybe, economical perspective. So EU is more open to the public data and use of it. And Germany, countries like Germany is more uh, conservative about personal data protection. And personal data and they, public data is very key for AI, generative AI, because you need to train the algorithms with it. So if there is an impediment or something that is just blocking you from access, you will have difficulty in the startups, AI-based startups. They will not be having the easy time accessing the public data if they need to. And where, on the other hand, in Silicon Valley, a United States, it will be much easier and it's a big market. So any company can have the room to grow and they can also dominate the European market. So it feels like the approaches are a little bit curbing the developments in the market developments in the EU. So that's the issue that I see. It. 
it's sort of this innovation and regulation paradox, right? Or tension. I think a good analogy in the United States is, I don't know if you're familiar with our, with HIPAA, which is the data uh, or privacy regulation around healthcare. And, you know, in some sense, we're protecting people's privacy, which can be great, right? But we're also making it very difficult to do research into medical cure. So, and the people who might have been cured by those diseases aren't really at the table making the regulations because it's theoretical in the future. So you kind of sit, I don't know how you react to that. Like, is AI is kind of similar. Like there's some near-term protection of data, but the actual benefits of AI really aren't at the table at this point because they're in the future. And it's kind of tempting to, to regulate what's right in front of you instead of looking to the future. Definitely. I mean, in the policy world, I feel like it is more like there is a hype, like with OpenAI, there was the chat GBT, and there was a hype. And it just captured some of the policymakers' attention. But chat GBT is just chat tool. So there are much more applications that can be applied. So it's not the whole AI, it's just generative AI just generates text, which is rather a simple thing. Imagine it can generate the image from text, the video from text, and generate, combine the text and the image and video together. So the potential would be even bigger. But just it is some hype-based approach, unfortunately. But I agree with that. We need to have some more free room. So I think the businesses need to experiment and there should be a red line at what level we can accept the risk. So there is a lot of concern about the future, but we don't know. Some of the things are just overreaction, in my opinion. So I think there should be some red lines, some very important red line that no one should cross, maybe the real danger to the public. And other than that, there should be a freedom that the business can enjoy, in my opinion. Do you think it's possible to set those red lines, I guess? Are they definable? I think it is also difficult. But again, we have the GDPR, but the many users in the EU, so they accept the application. They say, I accept the terms and the service. And they just accept. No one reads, no one spends a lot of time. So... At the end of the day, if you want to use the service and you tend to accept those rules anyways, yeah, it provides some protection and which is important, but I believe we need to have a better understanding what is public data. So the, there is a, this boundary between what is personal data and critical and public data is kind of blurry between country to country, state to state. And in the cyber world, there are no boundaries. And this friction creates a lot of issues, in my opinion. And for that reason, countries need to come together and develop an understanding, which I believe will take some time. It is difficult to have this reflex, develop this reflection that what is critical, what is important in a common ground, and which is a challenge. So if we related it to, you know, your what you're studying right now on cyber diplomacy, I mean, I guess it's similar in the sense of like no borders. They're both deal with with cyberspace and and uh, oh, you know the networks we have. But uh, it would seem like on the cyber side, you know, everybody kind of has the same interests to protect their citizens and their businesses. But there's not really a business side, a business case 
that's pro cyber crime, right? <laughs> you know that that a country is promoting. Whereas with AI, there is a sort of pro business plus protection. So talk a little bit about how you see the differences between those two. That is also another side of that. There is the nation state, the institution and surveillance. I think no one in the business want to really survey other, but maybe they can also, if they have some business interest, if they want to shut down the competition and want to get a hand of it, that can be also possible. But the way I see it, the countries have national interest. So I think we are still biologically with maybe mindset in the Stone Age. And we have these tools of technology, complicated stuff. It is getting more complicated, but we still have this divided mindsets, part of our biology. And right now we project this tribal approach to the nation state. And then nation states have the sovereignty in a digital cyberspace, and which is borderless. So how does it work? So both protection, protectionism, and in some other cases, if the state is strong, maybe they can just watch other countries, what they are doing, they can steal data. So that's another thing. We want an equal globe where people can access the information globally, but we also have this division among ourselves the nationalism, the identity, and mistrust on the other countries and other people. So that's what I say. It's like a magnifying glass. If you want to focus on the negative, we will find endless, endless stuff that is part of our political life, part of international reality. And But I believe step by step, maybe the future generations will be able to handle it better than how we are handling it currently. Maybe they will create a more united world, but we should make it possible. So for me, cybersecurity, whether it is AI, it should uh, open the door for more cooperation rather than competition and confrontation more importantly. That's my take in the cyber diplomacy. And for me, I think it definitely includes AI policy as well, because AI exists in the cyberspace and this about data, which is about, again, the cyber world. So for me, it should be the way to cooperate and have the channels to cooperate rather than getting more like digital sovereignty and isolation. That's my intake. I love this distinct, you know, humans are kind of biological, like our software is built by evolution. And so we're, we have these biological biases or whatever you want to call them, predilections, it, but our technology really doesn't, right? So it's, you know, you can't contain it in the same way that we, technology crosses all these borders and doesn't recognize them, right? So I mean, that's just an inherent conflict, like how it's hard to imagine that humans are going to somehow evolve to not be tribal. So how do we deal with that? going forward. Of course, like it takes the astronauts maybe to realize that we all live in this blue dot earth. When you need to really go to the space to realize that. And when you are among ourselves, we tend to focus on our differences and the hostilities, the history, the identity. So this is, I think, difficult concept. It is very hardwired in the political life, which also influence people's behavior policymaking. So 
internet is what people, what their connection is making of. So it is internet with the people. And if people are having this mistrust, having this kind of misbehavior, it will continue in the digital space as well. So for that, it is a challenge. But what happens, like when you develop the nuclear weapons, right? It gave the, some invincibility to the United States. But then other countries began to develop the same. And when it became a threat at the global level, so that stopped the nuclear weapons development. So maybe in the future, when more countries will realize the destructive sides and what they can perceive as the benefit, maybe it will create by time the common ground. So otherwise, with the current state, imagine there are a lot of African countries, they cannot even afford the laptop, no internet connection, no mobile phones. And we have in the Western world these fruits of the technology. And some people, maybe more than half of the world, cannot really afford that. So with this division, we are still way behind that. We still have this hegemony, we still have this conception, domination maybe, but by time, my take on cyber diplomacy also, more and more people join globally and this will create different interests, different discussions, different dialogues. And I believe it can open more doors to cooperate. And so this will take time though. It's interesting because you, know, you think about that with the nuclear analogy. I mean, nuclear really is inherently a nation state technology, right? Because of the resources it takes and and, you know, getting the plutonium uranium and, and the science, and it's not an easy thing to do, right? And in some ways, you could say AI, at least the most sophisticated models, are not quite that, but requires quite a bit of computing power, right? But that's just going down every year. So it seems like these will just cross into non-state actors, cross states, and like you said, to Africa eventually. So, and it sounds like maybe we all, we need Elon to blast us in the space to do all the negotiations. So everyone has to look at the blue dot while they're talking to each other. Maybe that would help somehow. <laughs> Got it. The emerging situations even sometimes divide us like the COVID, but eventually we need to really realize that behind the competition, maybe we have more to achieve together, but it's really difficult with all these imperities. So I think it needs some time. So talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously you're at the confluence of two major technical issues today, cyber and AI. So one of the fears people have is that AI will become like a massive tool for cyber attacks and theft and things like that. So talk a little bit about how you see the confluence of those two technologies. Yes, there's this kind of risk Especially we have more uh, computational power. We might later talk about the quantum computers. So we have this computational data. There will be more challenges for cybersecurity. The way I see it's particularly problematic for a data trust. So you may not be able to know if the information is generated is true or false. So they can retrieve the data, which is hidden with the cyber attacks and AI can be used in that. You can steal intellectual property, can steal copyrights, and you can use it. It can create a, quite a challenge for pharmaceutical companies and other companies, so which depend on this 
And on the other hand, for the public as well, you can produce some manipulated data that can have a bad impact on the government institution and overall democracy. So these are the challenges. And more we have the computational power, it will be easy to crack the encryption. So with the more powerful computers, post-quantum encryption people talk about, will probably breach some of old encrypted data and it will be easy to back and automate taking the government data, private data, or uh, let's say some of the licenses can be stolen. That is a quite a big challenge. So at the end of the day, there will be no lines like the AI and quantum computer cybersecurity. They're just all at the same time. Yeah, they will resolve into the same thing. So without security, without trust, nothing happens. So why don't you talk a little bit about quantum? Because my understanding, you know, I'm uninformed on this, but if you achieve quantum computing, essentially all encryption that we currently have is kind of useless at that point, right? Like you can take everybody's Bitcoin and you can go in and the computer, the government computers and banks and everything. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I had a chance to just look through that. There are some ways to encrypt the data for the post-quantum, like after the quantum computation. There will be some level of security still, but I think most of the data today, government data, are not prepared for that. So maybe some important institutes will protect their data with very powerful encryption. But let's imagine there will be a lot of weak spots that you can attack. So this will create a lot of challenge. And if you imagine, like there are countries like China, they are having a very competitive nature in that technological area. This will definitely create some mistrust and difficulties in the future. So I believe it is difficult to just try to race through the technology and policy and security. That will be a challenge for most of the countries and most of the institutions. But on the other hand, we don't know how fast they can develop some wide-use quantum computers. So if it is still like 50 years ahead, uh, maybe. But if it is like five years, uh, there is some trouble. You know, there was some talk about a recent breakthrough on quantum. You know, and these are hard to verify exactly what happened. So it is possible it could be here in five years, right? Or it could be 50, like you said. I mean, that would instantly change our entire view of the way we protect privacy and essentially couldn't given current technology. It's a, but it sounds like there are some post-quantum things being worked on that might, that might provide some protection, but it sounds like maybe those would be very expensive and difficult to maintain, at least under current technology. Is that right? Absolutely. So the way also the computers will be able to access data and manipulate data very fast. If the country, one country, let's say uh, China, has a lot of database, a lot of information, with the quantum computers, you can do whatever you want in a very short time. So this is very useful, for example, discovering the new drugs, vaccination, and some difficult issues that as human beings, we cannot solve very easily, quickly. But those computers will be very practical on those areas. But at the same time, if we have these political issues and if the countries bring it in the digital environment, they can also use it in the digital 
environment to attack one another. As the, this digital technology is becoming more critical, like the biggest company in the United States with the market capitalization is Apple. So the Microsoft, you can imagine Google, SpaceX, you can, the list goes on. So technology is getting more importance in every aspect. It's very critical. So if this phenomenon can be attacked, it can hurt the other nations. So this is, we developed the militaries to hurt other countries and try to influence. But now you don't need maybe those ones and you can maybe achieve your objectives through digital attacks. So that's a risk. So I had a bunch of thoughts when you were talking about that. So one was kind of made me feel like the EU regulatory framework is sort of beside the point, right? It's like, obviously, if we have quantum, that's going to superpower AI, right? More computations, we get closer to HI. You mentioned all these companies that are sort of on the leading edge of that, and uh, none of those are European. So it's sort of like, wow, you're trying to protect this near-term job loss or disinformation, and you could just lose the entire global power race and be sort of like a third tier country like that, right? So it does seem like there's a big tension there that Europe hasn't woken up to. Yeah. So I think the EU is focusing more on the personal data aspect. So the idea is if I stop my data being feeding the systems, it's going to be more safer. So, but in the other hand, uh, the focus is not about the business or the positive perspectives or the cooperation, it is more like a caution that your data should not be used. Yes, that is the thing. This technology is destructive. We don't know exactly how it will influence the job market. But if we just try to find the ways, I think with the AI, with the other technological tools, we will be able to develop better ecosystems for the future generations, for ourselves, for the future digital economy. If we try to curb it, I think that's the risk. Other countries will definitely, it, they, you cannot stop them. You can stop the EU, but you will never be able to just stop China and other countries. They can win this and you have to, at the end of the day, you will consume technology rather than produce. That's the risk. The other thing that kind of went through my mind is this thing that you mentioned, you know, like the biology of humans versus the, you know, the tribalism and maybe localism of humans versus the ubiquitousness or global nature of the tech. So that seems like quantum is going to put that on steroids, right? Go way past our capabilities. It's not just understanding it, but it, it will be operating at a scale that we just aren't hardwired to think through. It'll be doing things that we can't even really conceive of in some ways. So have you thought about that at all? Like what happens when these technologies just completely outstrip our biological capabilities to understand them. I mostly think about that aspect when I do the research, actually. That's a big risk, but at the same time, I think we will be able to survive. We will be able to find the ways. But if we really think in all these challenges, it can be very uh, disruptive. But it can be disruptive for everyone, every country. So at the end of the day, we able to develop a common understanding uh, maybe we can have a win-win situation. That is my take because we cannot stop technology. The rivers, they don't run backwards. So this will go forward. And as far as we can survive, we need to find a way. So that's the way. We just don't know how the dots will be connected, but they will be, I think, connected somewhere. 
And for that reason, I believe cyber diplomacy and all these attempts are very important. Even though we may not be able to solve everything right now, it will give a platform that can be figured out in the future. How would you characterize the current state of cyber diplomacy? Like you kind of mentioned earlier, it's sort of more taking place in the G7, G20, and maybe it's global. Right now, I think there is this idea that uh, it's very important, but right now, I think the country is focused on the hard physical challenges, the geopolitical challenges, and they seem to forget a little bit about the cyber diplomacy. So whenever we have the war, I think like the Russia and Ukraine war just put a pause on the digital diplomacy, cyber diplomacy agenda of the European Union. Because when you have the physical war, so you don't think about the diplomacy in the cyberspace. But with the emerging risks and because like we can have war one, two years, five years, it will somehow come to an end. But we will have these digital threats, they will be growing, so it will be here. So. There will be some ups and downs, but currently I think it is a little bit taken to the side. But I believe with the new applications of the AI and the challenges, especially the China and other countries that will challenge the hegemony of some certain states and companies, this will come to the service again, I believe. And the AI is, I think the quantum computation will be the, another uh, aspect of it. So really the technology will force us to have to deal with it because it's coming some point, right? Well, that's excellent. I like the techno optimism. We'll call you the Mark Andreessen of, of uh, the EU. Yes. As I say, it's like a magnifying glass. So if you have a good mindset, if you want to use it for good, you can focus on the positive and productive aspects. Just like anything, even science can be used to destroy the biological weapon, nuclear weapons, but it shouldn't stop us from developing the concept, theories, and we can use them for good too. So just the same way with, uh, with the AI, same way with the quantum computation, the data, the same. Excellent. Well, that's awesome. Well, Yasin, thanks so much for your time today and uh, appreciate you being on the podcast. It was a pleasure for me. AI, government and the future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, thanks for listening.